So, uh, here we go. We have been doing a series. Uh, hopefully you have outlines. Does everybody have outlines? And is my mic on and all that? So, we have been doing a series called Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity, in which we're looking at 15 major, not minor, biblical topics that we want to re-examine uh, to ask ourselves, is so-called Bible-believing Christianity in America uh, as biblical as uh, it would purport to be? And, of course, our, our conclusion is not so much, and so we need to re, uh, reevaluate a few things and all that kind of stuff. So that's the rediscovering part. But there's a, a saying that I hope you would all memorize. It's one of the uh, most important sayings for Grace Christian Fellowship. Scripture and theology must be incarnational. Scripture and theology must be incarnational. In other words, we can't just have insights from God's word that are in our head for the sake of knowing things. They have to be put into a way of life by a community of believers. There's nothing in Scripture that you can really live out by yourself. Uh, and there's nothing that's just meant to be held as a theory. Uh, it has to affect how we live and how we live together. So that's a big, big emphasis of this series. Now, the first four topics, the first one was loving God. Uh, normally, because of my background and in, in our beliefs, we would normally emphasize Scripture as the first topic in just about any a, a survey of anything. Uh, but I decided to, to not put it first, and partly because the ultimate goal that God has in mind uh, for your life and our lives together is that we would love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's interesting that when Deuteronomy first says that, Jesus, when quoting it, adds our mind. So he, he, I think he, Jesus is by the Holy Spirit because God is eternal and God made all nations and God's purpose has always been to fill the whole earth with his glory and that, so that people of every tribe, tongue, nation, in language and so forth, would, would uh, love him and worship him. Jesus kind of anticipates that the, that the gospel is going into uh, to a Greco-Roman culture and not just staying in Hebrew culture. And so uh, in, in the Hebrew mindset, uh, suke in Genesis 2-7, for instance, when God forms man of the dust of the earth, that's symbolic of the of physical part of us, and he breathes into him the breath of life, which is symbolic of the spirit. Uh, man becomes a living soul, or it could even be translated a self-conscious being. Because uh, the difference between human beings, one of the ways in which we're made in the image of God in a different way than, say, the animals are, is that animals know things and they can learn things. The evolutionists are always emphasizing on every PBS special about animals and every BBC Blue Planet things, uh, how you know giraffes can learn and elephants can learn and chimpanzees can learn, but they can't philosophize about it. So, you know, uh, they know, 
but only man, mankind knows that they know. And so that's an aspect of the image of God that's unique to the human race. And so, uh, you, know, only, you know, if you want to discuss with a uh, tiger the subject of epistemology, he's likely not to be able to understand, and he might just eat you in the meantime. <laughs> Excuse me, chewing on ice. Uh, so hot in here, I decided not to drink coffee, so I'm on my third cup of iced tea since 4 o'clock this morning. Um, so, um, excuse me for chewing on ice. That's probably not a good thing to do while you're into the microphone. All right, so um, ultimately loving God is, is uh, the end that's, you know, Josiah was talking this morning about things that were ends and of themselves and not means to an end. And loving God is an end in itself. We looked upon, at grace upon grace versus performance based. It's both within the nature of our flesh and our sin nature or whatever. Uh, and uh, part of our sin is to uh, want to be performance based. And performance based leads to a lot of misery because you will not be able to help being self-righteous and therefore too harsh on others. Nor will you ever, you will always be conflicted within yourself because in, on one, one end of things, you don't measure up to your own standards, let alone God's. Uh, so you're, you're always know deep down that you're falling short. Uh, but you're always uh, uh, compensating for that by being self-righteous. So you're, you're frankly psychologically a mess when you're performance-based. Uh, if you haven't spent a lot of time in your life on things like our Grace Upon Grace series and reading books like Galatians and Romans and really thinking about God's choice, his initiation, what grace really is, that it goes way beyond God's undeserved favor in his selection or calling of us, his election of us, but it goes to his equipping and empowering us to be Christ-like, to do the will of God, to fulfill the call of God in the, on, on the church in the earth. So that's, that's huge. Then we looked at the church and what it's supposed to be, uh, that, that involves looking at the Lord's Day, that involves looking at community, that look, involves looking at a discipling community, and many other topics. And then we looked at leadership in the church. Then about nine messages ago, we started on uh, the whole subject of rediscovering and storing the entire Bible as the word of truth and the word of God. Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is, is truth. So uh, about three to six weeks ago, we started doing an introductory survey of the Pentateuch, uh, and we focused for, I believe, three messages on Genesis, and now this will be the third message focusing on Exodus. I'm hoping uh, not to... Uh, I would love if I somehow can do Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as just one message, but I'd probably settle for doing one message on each of those. I don't want to do a, a message on each book of the Bible by itself. Uh, 
although we did not do anything like that when we did this series at Wright State some years ago. Uh, so it wouldn't be bad if we, if we end up doing a little bit of that. Um, I'll be okay with that. Um, we also looked at a bunch of scriptures. Uh, the main reason to believe in the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch is because scripture says it all over the place. And even our Lord Jesus several times calls that part of the uh, scripture the books of Moses. So you can't believe Jesus is deity. You can't, we can't be Christians. We can't worship Jesus and follow Jesus and love Jesus. And then in our heart think Jesus made all kinds of mistakes. So the whole modern higher critical idea that doubts the historical authorship of, ver of, of various books of scripture or wants it, you know, for instance, in the whole what's called higher criticism, they want to postulate that the book of Daniel wasn't written until the first century B.C. because Daniel so accurately predicts the, the fall of Babylon, the coming of the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans in that order. And so uh, because they're committed to an anti-supernatural view, they're, they're committed to an a priority leap of faith, a leap of doubt you might call it, uh, that, that Daniel must have been written after all these things happened because God couldn't know something like that in advance and reveal it to, to mankind. But that's an assumption they're making that has no basis in, in any kind of, like however you look at epistemology, scientific basis for knowledge, empirical, uh, spiritual revelation, what, whatever epistemology you're, you're uh, talking about uh, to assume that God, there is no God and that God can't know the end from the beginning, that he's not outside and above time, and he's not capable of communicating with his people is an assumption that that's, there's no basis for, for be, being able to prove anything like that. So to base your whole reality on that is actually an absurd leap of doubt, which is kind of funny since the unbelievers, what happens in, when you're lost, when you're blind, spiritually blind, before you know the Lord, you have many deceived ideas. And all the most important ideas of your mind and heart are completely deceived. And so you actually think that those who are believing God and following God, that they're taking a leap of irrational faith, but our faith, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is uh, the substance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. Our faith is actually based on a valid epistemology. God said it, we believe it. And uh, all, all knowledge is taking a leap of faith to believe something for some reason. You're either believing it because of scientific evidence or logic or whatever, uh, we're believing that God was able to communicate his word through to 40 authors on three different continents over 2,000 years in the 66 books that are, have been recognized as the Bible since uh, the, uh, the Old Testament was, the canon was closed to it about 100 years before Christ, um, although that was really just confirming something that had been confirmed and, and, and uh, accepted since about 275, 300 A.D., 
before the, because the Septuagint, I believe, was written around 250 B.C., and the, the 39 books that we call the Old Testament were all agreed upon and accepted uh, by that time. And uh, the, the 27 books of the New Testament, although there was no formal list of them made, um, the great Athanasius uh, wrote, wrote a list of them in a letter, and, and it was, uh, of course, prompted by Marcion's spurious list of 14 books that he accepted. Uh, but, but the practice of the churches, almost all the churches throughout the Roman Empire had anywhere between 22 and 27 of the New Testament books in their possession by the year 70 AD and had considerable agreement that they were Scripture. Peter, in his epistle, actually calls Paul's writing Scripture. All right. So again, two... um, This is now the third Sunday that we looked at Exodus. I'm not going to review on your notes Roman numeral B1 through uh, 7B is what we've covered already. Then I put a little line there where we're starting today. And uh, remind us that uh, for each number, uh, small letter A is the scripture and and the main ideas that are in that scripture are the main accounts. Uh, small letter B is the takeaways, the point of the lesson. And we are, of necessity, skipping a lot of material in Exodus. I'm just giving us about 17 of the most major points in a 40-chapter book. Um, whatever this is worth to you, generally, uh, when I... Uh, have had various Bible study programs in my walk with the Lord. And again, I've been only a Christian 46 years, so that's not a lot of time or a lot of perspective uh, in terms of scriptural things. You know, the Lucifer has been battling the saints for 7,000 years, or 6,000, something like that. And um, I, I, I have to convince some people sometimes, but I'm really not quite that old. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, like for, during the war for independence, I was just actually a little kid then. But uh, <laughs> so, uh, I had a full head of hair back, there, back when, when, when John Adams and I were friends. But, uh, and it wasn't even gray yet. So, um, so let's get into uh, uh, number 8A there. So in, in Exodus 16, the emphasis of the chapter is on God giving the Israelites the manna. So one of the major things that happens over and over, uh, there's several major things, like, for instance, Pharaoh hardening his heart. And one of the things we pointed out is that some of the scriptures say God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and some say Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And a lot of the mistake of Western Christianity is that um, um, we, uh, we, can't, we can't seem to hold the fact 
that in the Bible, the Bible is filled with things that seem to be paradoxical from a human, natural-minded perspective. But from God's way of looking at things, they are not antithetical and not irreconcilable. So although God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh still chose to harden his heart. And Pharaoh is still culpable for hardening his heart. And so even though God predestines and foreknows everyone that will be drawn into his kingdom, Jesus said, no one can come unless the Father draws him. Uh, He said in John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Nevertheless, those who reject Christ are still doing it, and they're still culpable. And we are not comfortable with that kind of thinking in, in the West because we can't reconcile the this, this seeming uh, contradiction there. But in God's economy, they're not contradictions, and, uh, and the, the Bible simply states them as facts. So that's, uh, that's interesting. I, I read a book yesterday by an Episcopalian pastor in Texas named Kenneth Myers, and it, it's called Salvation and How We Got It Wrong. In, in it, he rejects the Western notion of penal substitutionary atonement in favor of the Eastern Orthodox view, uh, uh, which I don't know how to characterize that. But uh, he makes many good points, and some things are helpful. But what he's uh, misunderstanding is there are actually three major uh, uh theories of substitutionary atonement in, in Western church history, and they don't just date back to Augustine and Anselm and things like that. They date back to Paul and Jesus, and they're clearly in the New Testament. And the is he wrong? Not really. It's a both-and equation. And so many, many things in Scripture are what I call divine tensions, they're both and, not either or. And you've got to get comfortable with that if you're going to know the Lord and follow the scriptures. Because again, the word of God asserts over and over and over again things that if you're only thinking from man's point of view and, in, and using our finite minds and you're following the Western idea that, uh, called the law of non-contradiction, then you're not going to be comfortable with what the Bible says, and that's why you have all sorts of fights between people who call themselves Calvinists and, and, Ar- and people who call themselves Arminians. Uh, one of the guys that I, I like the most in our day and age is a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller. And a lot of you know Tim Keller because his books are so popular. Um, if, if the... Uh, uh, What's the New York Times uh, list of, of, what do they call it, the uh, bestseller books or whatever, included Christian books. Uh, Quite a few of his books would have been on it for several years in a row. Uh, They they tend to, uh, occasionally they include a Christian book, but not very often. Uh, They they have quite a bit of bias in that respect. But nevertheless, uh, Tim Keller's favorite theologians are, number one, his wife, that's always a good point, by the way, brothers. If, if your wife likes to read books, it's like my wife knows more about theology and biblical studies and so forth than me, 
and I often consult her, therefore. Good, good, that's a good policy if you have a wife that knows more than you. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but his second favorite theologians are Jonathan Edwards, and his third favorite is, is C.S. Lewis. And Jonathan Edwards and C.S. Lewis disagree about a number of issues, and especially all the issues regarding soteriology, that is, the doctrines of salvation. Edwards is a Reformed Calvinist thinker. Lewis is a Roman Catholic, big on, on choice. Pardon me? No, Lewis was a Roman Catholic. Um, his friend Tolkien was Anglican. But, um, of course, he died November 22nd, 1963, the same day as uh, two other very famous men, one being John F. Kennedy and the other, Aldous Huxley. They all died on the same day, ironically. So, um, the, the, my point is simply this. Uh, some things that seem to be a contradiction to us are asserted by the Bible and uh, if you really start working with getting into the presence of God and thinking God's thoughts after him, which is what we're supposed to do. You know, it's amazing that in Isaiah 55, 10, and 11, when the scripture says, oh, uh, we, have, oh we have the notes here, but we don't have them up there. Okay. Uh, when the scripture uh, says, God is rebuking Israel through Isaiah, and he's saying, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Uh, most times, Christians, not under, reading the whole context, quote that is, is uh, like, that's the way we're supposed to be. Well, you know, they'll say, well, our thoughts aren't God's thoughts. It's actually a rebuke. Isaiah is saying, by now, your thoughts ought to be God's thoughts. And all thinking is derived from somewhere. And for, for a, uh, the, 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 the idea that's in Western culture of objective versus subjective thinking is not a biblical idea at all. All thinking is actually subjective, and God is the right subject to start with. His subjective point of view is correct. Ours is not so much. In fact, so much so that the Bible says all men are liars. I have actually talked to people who thought, have thought that that means just the male gender are liars. <laughs> but uh, it really means that all humankind are, are liars. Sorry, ladies. All right. So let's get into this. In... in uh, Again, in Exodus 16, um, the Israelites are grumbling against Moses. And so, again, one of these dichotomies is simply this. Over and over and over again, starting in Exodus all the way through Numbers, the Israelites grumble against Moses. And sometimes it says that they're grumbling against Moses. But other times it says they're grumbling against God. Which is it? And I always say, yes. It, because to grumble against delegated authority is to grumble against God himself. You may not like that your boss said, do a better job cleaning this or, do, or getting these reports out on time or whatever, 
But all authority is from God. And there's, for every institution God has created, there's legitimate and illegitimate authority. So there's authority in the family, there's authority in the church, there's authority in the workplace, there's authority in the civil government. And to whatever degree that authority actually stays under the authority of God in, in his word, to reject that authority is to reject the Lord himself. And so we see a great example of this in Exodus 16. The Israelites are grumbling that Moses has taken them out into the wilderness. But in fact, God is the one who's taken them out in the wilderness. And now they're afraid they're going to go hungry. So the Lord feeds them quail at night, so much so that, that they start to get sick because they're, they, they're gorging themselves. And the next day, he feeds them the uh, word that is pronounced something like manna, but it's the Hebrew word that actually means what is it? That's what they called it. What is it? <laughs> and that was the, so that, that name stuck. Uh, you, you know, it describes it as tasting like coriander seed and looking like uh, flaky. It's, you know, I, I think of it as like a flaky pie crust or I love flaky pie crust. But, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, the Israelites were supposed to be, were supposed to gather as much as each needed for each household based on the people in the household. Now, um, as, as always, God is, was always testing Israel as he is you because God's eyes look to and fro throughout the earth and he's looking for a people that will do his will. God is not looking for a people who uh, have a lot of money and uh, who have a lot of status in, in the worldly things or whatever. There's a lots of things man would prioritize. Remember when Jesse brings his sons be, before Samuel, Samuel tells him to have a banquet and that he's to bring his sons. Je, Jesse's thinking is such that they don't even bring David to the banquet. He was the youngest, and he was always being faithful to take care of the sheep. But it was just because he was faithful to tear, take care of the sheep that he was God's choice. God had put in his heart an obedient heart to the Lord and, uh, and, uh, and many other characteristics that we see unfold uh, in terms of his worship and so forth. So with the manna, some of the Israelites uh, say, tried to save some for the next day. And guess what? Anyone remember what happened? It grew foul and bred worms, right? Yet, on, when on the night before the Sabbath, they were to collect enough for two days and save it, and it didn't grow foul and breed worms. Because it just gets down to obedience. There can be no obedience to God hear this, that will not involve supernatural uh, things. And so one of the things is you can never be a follower of God if you're too natural-minded, which is a huge problem in Western Christianity today. 
Now, we're going to get back to Exodus 16 for our communion meditation, so I've got to move on. Exodus 17, we see Christ is revealed as the rock. And of course, uh, Christ, uh, again, they're grumbling against uh, Moses again. And so, if you remember, Moses is so frustrated that after God tells him to strike the rock, what does he do? He strikes the rock two times instead of once. And uh, he didn't represent God accurately. And that just that one, if that doesn't put the fear of God in you, I, I don't know, because I've been a pretty poor leader in comparison to Moses, and God did not allow Moses to enter the promised land because of that. Wow. That, you know, if you... Uh, that's why James tells us in James 3, let not many of you become teachers. Everybody wants a big ministry, and everybody wants to... Well, uh, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living, living God. And if God is calling you uh, to um, a higher responsibility... And a good practice that I was taught by one of my first pastors, whenever God puts a, a, a new level of responsibility into your life, Take some steps to cut yourself back voluntarily. Like do some things to deny yourself. Go on some extra fast or, or what have you. Uh, get, you know, get rid of your television, whatever. Uh, do, you know, t t humble yourself in certain ways that will remind you that who he is compared to who we are. Because there's not enough fear of God in the earth today and especially in God's people. And so put yourself in a place where you're going to actually be fearing God more. So, um, later in that same, uh, by, I, was, I really wanted, I didn't manage my time well enough, and I got up here a little bit late, so I really wanted to read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11. It's in bold print. I hope you take these home, and I hope you spend time. Like the Bible says to honor the elders who rule well, but especially those who work hard at the preaching and the teaching. If you don't revisit these and study these, you're disrespecting what the Lord's done in our church. I'm really impressed with uh, the young guys, John Gray, uh, Stephen, Daniel Williams, Josiah, in, in the kinds of teachings they're, 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 they're bringing forth at a very young age in the Lord. It, it's good stuff. And it's, it's a gift from God. And uh, to, to not be here at 930 is, is disrespectful, frankly. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of pride that's not, not easy to understand, to be honest. It's kind of a hubris, like I don't, I don't need... Uh, what the Lord's doing. And um, and you should be taking notes and you should review the notes once in a while. I know like when I, in my first 20 years of being a Christian or so, I would do a new notebook for the teachings every year and I would at least go back through the whole notebook three or four times a year to review all the Lord was speaking to the church I was in through the elders of that church. And let's see, for the first 
five years of being a Christian, I wasn't any kind of leader in the church. I was the guy who mowed the lawns, took out the trash, um, hung, the, hung the posters and babysitted the kids. And uh, those are good days. Because that's when you learn so much. All right, so Christ the rock, and then later they f- fight the Amalekites. Um, and, of course, Aaron and her end up holding up Moses' hands. And there's a lot of lessons about uh, leadership teamwork to be had there. Um, and, and so forth. So, uh, and also the Lord speaks prophetically that from generation to generation... He will make war against the nation of Amalek. And that's very, very important in the life of Saul later and so forth. And David. So, uh, some, you know, we don't think this way in our nation. Someday I'm going to do a, a, a message that won't be popular because everybody wants to worship Thomas Jefferson and so forth. But it was Thomas Jefferson who birthed the policy of using alcohol and other things to to deceive the Indians out of their land and 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 to take a very uh, aggressive policy of making uh, covenants with Native American tribes, where they were intentionally making a covenant with the wrong Native American tribe for that particular area of land, so that they could later have excuse to go back and exterminate them and so forth, and. Um, it's, if you don't think that's important in American history, then read about Joshua and, and the Gibeonites and how that became important in, in the time of Saul and David again because they had made covenant with the Gibeonites and then they broke their covenant. And America did a lot of that uh, and that started with the second, third president of the United States named Thomas Jefferson a lot of you probably, and it's one that the liberals love and worship. But uh, frankly, he was a very wicked man. So, moving on to Exodus 18. Exodus 18 is, the, is when Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brings his wife, Zipporah. One of uh, the people we met in India was a wonderful lady named Zipporah, who was... Our driver's name was Cornelius, so two biblical names. And Zipporah, his wife, was a wonderful Christian who welcomed us into her home. And, and uh, I'm, ho- I'm hoping we'll have much connection with those two in the, the future. But um, when Je- Jeth- Jethro counsels Moses, this is why I, I wish I had managed my time better and not reviewed as much. Um, I'm using Stephen's laptop, so I'm not as used to it. Hold on. I forgot my laptop. Another technology mistake today. So notice when you go through, make a note for yourself when you go through um, when you go through uh, Exodus 18, notice the characteristics that Jethro tells Moses to look for in the men that he raises up to delegate authority to. Starting in verse 21, look for able men. So, you know, I look for people who are gifted, who have abilities. Men who fear God. Who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe. 
Place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and of tens. Can you be bribed for a, for a meal? I, I, I hear about all these arrangements where people do this and that for, uh, f- for someone to cook them a meal. <laughs> um, I'm just teasing you, by, by the way. All right, so Exodus 19. Uh, Exodus 19 is the beginning of the Sinai Covenant. And um, where's my notes? Um, I, you should by now know that we say Exodus 19, 5 and 6 is quoted in this church hundreds and hundreds of times. Uh, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, if then, if then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. What makes a Christian is not someone who's prayed the sinner's prayer and gone forward as an altar call. It's someone who indeed obeys the Lord's voice. Remember when Mary and, and Jesus' brothers came to, to get him, it doesn't say this specifically, but my guess is they thought Jesus had kind of lost, lost his marbles and you know he has all these people following him. And in Hebrew culture... When your father dies, the oldest son was supposed to stay home and take over the family business. And Jesus is off doing this itinerant ministry with his disciples and gathering crowds. And I think they came to rein him back in. And Jesus, they say, your mother and brother are outside. And he says, well, who are my mothers and brothers and sisters? This is a, a painful lesson for some because if you don't choose to do this, as you walk with the Lord, the Lord will choose it for you. But uh, he says, those who hear the word of God and do it are my mothers and sisters and brothers. And so spiritual family is actually always more important than natural family. And who, and who you're uh, supposed to be uh, experiencing family with is not who you are born of biologically. It's who you are reborn of spiritually. It's where God has placed you in, in the family of God, in the people of God. And Jethro makes that clear to Moses, as did Jesus to his disciples. If you will then obey my voice, you'll be a kingdom of people, possession for all the earth is mine. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. First uh, Peter 2.9 quotes that specifically. You hear a lot of, there's a, a theology that has ravished the church and, and destroyed evangelical Christianity called dispensationalism. And the dispensationalists say the things that the, that the scriptures say about the, uh, about the people of God throughout the Old Testament do not apply to the church. There's a verse that specifically spells it out that it does, as does Hebrews 10, 26 and following and other verses. Dispensationalism tends to go with pietism and a lot of destructive teachings that turn Christians into religious, irrelevant people. Um, All the covenants of God now apply to the church. Matthew 21, 43, I shall take the kingdom away from you, speaking to Israel, and give it to the nation producing the fruit of it. 
which is supposed to be the church. Uh, again, look up Hebrews 12, 18 through, 19, through, 18 through 29 and, and study those. I put them in bold prints, and so circle them. Make sure you understand what God called Israel to all through the Old Covenant was withdrawn from Israel in, in the 67 through 70 AD with the destruction of, of, of Jerusalem and the tearing down of the temple. And God had spent a generation building his new people. And one of the uh, principles in the scripture is the remnant principle. God always ha- takes his new move, some of the, of the first people in, in what God is doing, always come out of the last people God is doing. I think it's been an interesting thing in Grace Christian Fellowship's history that so many people that landed here were dispensationalists and other kinds of evangelicals that were misguided, misdirected, uh, uninformed about so many things, and God wanted better for them. And a lot of times it's a pruning thing, where like John 15 if you bear fruit, you actually get pruned to bear more fruit. And so what happens a lot of times is people are being very faithful Christians to, to what they know. Even if what they know is misguided and wrong and so forth, God is pleased that they're so faithful to, to pass on the fruit to their children, et cetera, et cetera. And so he'll actually prune them back in order to bring a new growth that's the right, in the right directions. That's so huge. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. I've got to finish Exodus today. Oh, my gosh. We're... Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. What I want you to know, I want you to know a few things about the Ten Commandments. We covered the Ten Commandments in some detail in the Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. Element three is about the Ten Commandments. Here's some things you should know. The Ten Commandments are listed in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, word for word, the same. All ten of the commandments are repeated numerous times in the New Testament. So this twisting of Paul's words, Paul says twice that Christians are not under the law because we're under grace. Uh, Christians have misinterpreted that to to say the law is not important, it's not relevant, uh, we don't have to follow it. Uh, No, we're not under the the way is related to the law as an external thing written on tablets of stone because God has now written them on our hearts of flesh and it's our inward desire to do the law. Uh, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, Matthew 5, 17 through 48. He came to put it into force. He came to write it on our hearts. And so the law of God is still, like if he didn't like murder then, he still doesn't like murder. He didn't change his mind about that. And uh, he's not going to bless the abortionist. It's just not going to happen. 
And one of the things you ought to pray is that God would bring their sins on their heads. So, um, secondly, you should know that with all the commandments, there's what some people call case laws. Uh, Generally, the scriptures call them statutes or ordinances. So when you read in Psalm 119 and other places where I love your statutes and your ordinances, he's saying I love the case laws. What the case laws are hypothetical situations that tell us how to interpret the Ten Commandments. So Leviticus 23 for instance, is a whole chapter about that, the, the, the commandment about keeping holy the Lord's day. And it tells us how to do the Sabbath and how to do all the festivals. And there's uh, four places in the, in the five books of Moses that cover all the festivals and how Israel is supposed to celebrate them. Because all covenants have, coven, have ceremonies of initiation and ceremonies of renewal, like the Lord's Supper that we're hopefully going to get to very soon. Um, So uh, the case laws, you know, there have been recent court cases twice in America in the last 10 years where a judge threw out the decision of of a jury because someone in the jury referred to the Bible. In colonial New England, all jurors always brought their Bible. And what they deliberated about was which case laws most applied to this case. Uh, if, any, if you know anything about Western law, in, in, uh, if you go to law school, you'll study what's called Blackstone's Commentaries. And Blackstone was a thoroughly Christian man uh, he's kind of the most important figure in English-speaking countries' practice of laws, law, and he based all of his thinking on the Old Testament and its case laws. And so there was a time when uh, judges and juries in this country knew that if we're going to have justice, we must... Re- re- Uh, apply the word of God to this case. Because all the pagan systems of justice are full of really wicked, absurd injustices. That's all I have time for on the Ten Commandments. I wish I had more. Exodus 21 through 23 is all case laws. Exodus 24, the covenant is affirmed again. So uh, I meant to read, uh, see if I have, got to get this thing going, see if I have time to read Genesis, Exodus 24, 7. Clicking forward, forward, forward. Where is it? There we go. So then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Now, look for that in Scripture, because part of renewing the covenant, there's a reason why our songs that we sing on Sunday mornings are from Scripture. There's a reason why we always recite either the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed together, because the Lord's Day is a day of covenant renewal. 
And that's the whole meaning of the covenant supper. And so to, to have a faulty view of the Lord's day where you get here at 10.30 instead of 9.30 and you, you, you know, you're more devoted to your Sealy Posturepedic than to Christ is problematic. It's very problematic. Uh, now, you don't have to get up at 3 in the morning or 4 in the morning. Uh, you could wait till 6 or 7. But nevertheless, uh, if Saturday nights, Sunday mornings, you should specifically have, I would say, a minimum of one hour, but I would recommend two or three hours of preparation to come here. That should be part of your family devotions on Saturday nights or on early Sunday morning if you have that kind of discipline. Adam Furlow has that kind of discipline. It's, it's not, he, he like, he's an early morning guy, I think. At least that's what I've heard. I've never been there at uh, any place where he lives to verify that. Um, not in the morning, anyway. I, I have visited where he used to live before, of course. Um, Exodus 25, the tabernacle and its pattern. So uh, Exodus 25 introduces us to one of the most important biblical concepts. One of the things that we're up against today in in so-called Bible-believing Christianity is uh, people get persuaded by just about any book they read without knowing how to counterbalance the arguments with other arguments and so forth, partly because... We haven't been trained to look for models, prototypes, examples. In John 13, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he tells them, I'm doing this as a prototype. I'm do- uh, most translations use the word example, but the Greek word means as a pattern, as a model. Exodus 25, 8 and 9 And then verse 40, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture. So just so you shall construct it. See to it that you make them after uh, after the pattern for which uh, was shown you on the mountain. Learning to look for models and patterns, the model of the gospel, the model of disciple making, the model of the church. This is a major, major way of reading the Bible. Let's keep going. Uh, Exodus 32, they make the golden calf, and God is ticked. You ever had God ticked at you? I have. Um, there are sometimes you can sense that the Lord is angry at you. I've known that feeling, um, unfortunately. Moses' intercession, I wish I could, t- again, we're way past my time. So I'm, I'm hoping you're right, taking notes and that you see this stuff as serious because there's no more important books in the Bible than Genesis and Exodus. And so that's why we spent three weeks on each of them. When you look at the intercession of Moses in both chapter 32 and 33, try to write down some, of, some principles. So he's, he's appealing to God for the sake of his covenant. 
it's not, you know, what we do um, prayer-wise today is uh, Sister Susie has the flu, and we, we love Sister Susie, and that's okay that you do. Uh, but we, instead of, uh, you know, interceding the right way, we just kind of are touchy-feely in our prayers. But the first thing you need to kind of discern is what is the will of God? First John 5, 14 and 15 says, if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if he hears us, we have the things that he asks for. Often we are praying things that are our will. You know, I prayed that the Lord would make me rich many times. He hasn't answered that prayer yet, and I don't think he's going to. Nor is he going to make me famous, nor does he even care about stuff like that. Where am I? Um, so, uh, some of the Moses, uh, Exodus 32. Turn your bank burning anger and relent. Notice some of the things God appeals to Moses. Why should the Egyptians, I'm in Exodus 32, around verse 11. Why should the, uh, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, when you're praying, be, be careful of God's reputation. You know, often we are concerned about our reputation. A lot of, a lot of infighting in, in marriages and and, uh, and other things in the church are people wanting to climb the ladder and outdo each other. It's I, what I call the crab bucket principle. You know that if you throw a bunch of crabs into a bucket, they will never get out because as soon as one starts crawling up the side, the others grab that crab to try to pull themselves up by it, and it, but instead they pull that person down. And that explains a lot of families and, and, and especially a lot of churches and a lot of businesses. Moses is concerned when God is angry with the Israelites about the golden calf that God's reputation wouldn't be damaged in the eyes of the Egyptians. Is that our concern in prayer? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom... You swore by your own self. So always remind God of the covenant promises of God to have a people for his own possession in the earth. These are like, I have some teachings on the principles of intercessory prayer, but you can do the teaching yourself by studying the intercessory prayers of Moses and Nehemiah and other great intercessors. There's two great uh, Nehemiah prayers. There's Daniel, there's uh, Moses in both Exodus 32 and 33. Now, Exodus 33 uh, is very important because God threatens to withdraw his presence. An issue in the church today is, is the presence of God among us or not? And Moses makes it clear in his intercessory prayers Lord, if you don't, God is telling Moses because of the golden calf, I'm not going with you anymore. Wow. 
Think about that because think about your own life. And sometimes we walk in certain ways that, that God is wanting to say, I'm not going with you anymore. Certain sins will cost you the presence of God. And you, I don't care whether it's gluttony, uh, pornography, uh, cheating on your tithes. Uh, I don't care what the sin you're considering is. You cannot sin unless you go through a process of deception whereby you convince yourself that the cost of the sin will not be as great as the passing pleasure. And you have to, you have to embrace that deception to, to sin. That's why Proverbs, the first nine chapters of Proverbs warn young men about sexual sins. Because the cost is great. Some people put themselves their whole life with the Lord back years by embracing certain kinds of sins over and over and over. And you need to understand that in the Lord's presence, the scripture makes it clear, that in his presence, no evil dwells there. You can't sin in the presence of God. And all sins will cost you some tarnishing of the presence of God in the church, not just in your life, in your family, in your household. You know, so-and-so may sin, but his whole family is hurt by it. Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I in your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the earth? I was involved in a deliverance session um, that lasted till midnight Friday night, and then uh, I, everyone else left, and I counseled the person until 1.30. Very wonderful time. But what was most wonderful was, I think partly because of how much progress this particular person had made in the things of God, the presence of God was among us. And so, you know, one of the things that was so clear about, you know, Amber did a lot of leading, was so clear was that she was hearing from God as we were talking, as we we're praying, as we we're doing things. The Lord was showing her stuff. And uh, the whole, there was a team of five or so people and everybody had stuff the Lord was showing us. Without that, we can't function. You know, I've, I've had my opinion before. And my opinion is not worth a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Of course, they're pretty expensive. But... <laughs> You know, uh, one of the reasons I encourage people, I'm surprised how few people, you know, it's kind of funny because it's one of the differences between a lot of Christians that I've known that are, say, 40 or more years old in the Lord versus Christians that are, say, less than 20 years old in the Lord. Part of the manifestation of our culture is that you can tell someone what to do to help them grow in the Lord more than 100 times, and they still don't do it. Like, for instance, I've been pleading with everybody since 2003, to get three by five note cards and write on the front of them, the line part, write scripture verses. 
and on the back, write, write the reference. Now, I know there's fire or something, and there's programs for this stuff now. That won't do you as well, and I'll tell you why. There's something about when you actually write it, and there's something about when you carry it in, a, in you know, your pocket, your blue jean jacket where you used to carry your smokes. <laughs> Bradbury. <laughs> so, uh, you know why? Because you don't have to turn your phone on. You don't have to turn your computer on. You just have all these scriptures in your pocket. And if you get stuck waiting for an elevator, you can rememorize five scriptures while you're waiting for the elevator. You know, the summer that I was 18 years old, I had a job putting a, a tar and gravel roof on a big convent of five buildings. And so there was this mountain of stones and I had a coal shovel and they sent this big bucket that was about this high and it was, it was square and it had a bottom that flipped out when it got up to its destiny. And so when the bucket landed, it took me 18 to 20 scoops to fill the bucket up. I counted them many times. <laughs> and I always try to make sure I could do it in less than 60 seconds. That's, you know, one scoop every three seconds. You, you got to keep moving. But then it took five minutes for the thing to be hoisted up to the roof, swung over the roof, the bottom drop out, all the stones, you know, moving the pile. We were moving a pile of stones up to, to the roofs. And then they sent the bucket back down. Most people would just sit and waste that five minutes. Every night I wrote out three by five note cards and I carried a pack of them in my pocket and I used that five moments and I memorized around 2,000 scripture verses that summer. At five minutes at a time while I was waiting for that bucket. You know, programs are not programs. You know, uh, it's, it's amazing how many times I've said just what I just said, and I think there's around five people in our church who actually do this. But I've said this uh, three or four times a year since we started in 2003, and yet very few people memorize Scripture. You know what? When you want to be led by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can speak to an empty head. Because the wind, he's wind, and he'll just pull right through your cap. There's a lot of dead space in there. The Lord can speak to a mind filled with Scripture, and his goal is to take the mind filled with Scripture and write it on your heart through various spiritual experiences in worship, in deliverance, and sozos, and so forth. You know, when you, you, God will get, take you through experiences. Your boss being mad at you, uh, for one of the things that you, if you're called of God and God has uh, special things for you, you're called to be misunderstood and falsely accused. And if that's not happening somewhere in your single household or in your place of employment or something, you're probably not right with God. Because every character God used in the Bible went through times of being falsely accused.
this whole thing where God threatens to, uh, of course, uh, in these passages, the Lord, the Lord, great God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and so forth, and the children to the children, forth to what, the third and fourth generation. You know, one of the things, uh, if you're a parent, you probably worry about your kids sometimes, right? Do you know God has promised uh, his people that their, his, their, your children's children will serve him to a thousand generations? Use that in your prayer life and in your parenting techniques. Israel's warned not to make a covenant with the people of the land, et cetera. Let's, let's, uh, boy, I got to finish up. It's I'm a half hour past time. Um, I really want to get done with Exodus. Exodus 34 um, is one of those chapters that tells us about all the festivals, the three major festivals, and the Sabbath day, and the covenant is renewed. Exodus 35 through 39. The Feast of Renewal and is renewed and so forth. Um, Exodus 35 through 39, I'm sorry, funds are raised, the construction started and completed. Now, when you're reading Exodus 35 through 39, I want you to see how many times, depends on the translation, how it'll be worded, but it'll say, just as the Lord commanded Moses at the end of the verse, about every six or eight verses. He did this, he made this part of the tabernacle, this part of the furniture, and this part of the curtains, just as the Lord commanded Moses, just as the Lord commanded Moses. You know, one of the things that, the reason we have creeds, scripture readings, worship, teachings, and and we have all the elements of a high church, liturgical church in Grace Christian Fellowship's Lord's Day meeting. That's not because it was Greg and Jason's and John's idea. It's because the, all those things are traceable to the New Testament practice while the apostles were still alive. There, every church should have scripture readings. Every church should recite creeds. Every church should have weekly communion. To do so, to not do so, is to not follow the biblical pattern. It's not, just, it's not just something that we like to do because it's our option to, or something. Now, we do it in a very low church way because a lot of what evangelical Christianity that emerged between 1830 to 1890 was all about was rejecting what they considered to be the cold orthodoxy of the Lutherans, the Anglicans, and the Catholics which often had the right liturgy and so forth, but not a lot of fervor for the Lord and passion. And so a lot of Christians get a little bit of, get touched by God and get on fire, and all of a sudden they know better than the ancient church has known about everything. And so a big part of evangelicalism has wrongly been an anti-liturgical attitude. Now, what God has done with Grace Christian Fellowship is he's brought us a lot of people who were evangelicals who were there, and if they knew we had wine and communion, uh, they probably wouldn't come back. But the truth of the matter is, 
Um, we still have the grape juice as sort of a way of helping people get started, but it's, a, it's wrong. Because the Bible doesn't say to serve grape juice. And you really shouldn't drink the grape juice unless you're still not very far with the Lord. I also like it because some, some parents would prefer their kids to drink it. But the truth is, it's this much. You're, no kid's going to get drunk. And the Bible says wine. It doesn't say grape juice. And that was actually something that I used to fight with John about. John rightfully wanted to get rid of the grape juice. <laughs> but I'm like, well, it's the way we get people started. But then I sometimes I, people, some of the leaders tell me, and I just close my ears and go, no, you're not telling me this. The people that have been, been coming six weeks and longer are still drinking the grape juice. That's wrong. It really is. Because Jesus didn't make grape juice at the wedding of Cana. The, the word for wine is, in the New Testament is the Greek word oino. And we etymologically get wine straight from that. There's only one other word for wine in the Bible. Does anyone know where it is? Acts what? Acts 2. And the word is glucose. And it means cheap, syrupy wine, like Boone's Farm or Mad Dog, or you know some of those from when your kids, from your childhood. That's the stuff you drink when you're in seventh grade, and you know, your parents don't know you're drinking. And you don't have any discernment yet. And what, what, what's happening in Acts 2 is the, 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 the people who come running are accusing the apostles of being full of, it's normally translated sweet wine or cheap wine. They're saying, you're drinking Mad Dog 2020. <laughs> Nathan probably knows what that is. <laughs> That's the kind of wine that people buy, like when you're slipping somebody to buy wine for you when your parents don't know when you're, in seventh, when you're 12. You know, it's worse than wine coolers. You know, like that's, it's little kids wine. It's, it's soda pop wine. And that's, it, but that, that word only appears one time in the New Testament as a put down. They're basically saying you don't even understand wine enough to buy the good stuff. That's what they're saying in Acts 2. You guys are drunk on like winos who can't afford real wine. And they drink wine coolers or something. Wine coolers are for kids. I mean, that's really kind of, they're, they're soda pop. With soda pop wine. So, and I like grape juice. By the way, I drink Welch's grape juice. I love Welch's grape juice. But not for church. All right, funds raised, construction started, completed. Uh, so, so Exodus 39, 32, I have it in two translations, the New English translation, and they both, that ends with, they did it exactly so. And the common, uh, yeah, is it the common English Bible? Yeah, uh, they, just exactly as the Lord had commanded. Now, let's end our survey of Exodus by looking at chapter 40, because this is what our goal is. 
I want you to understand, does Grace Christian Fellowship have goals? What I was saying, when Moses says, in Lois, you go with us, like, are there changed lives that happen supernaturally? Are there people who get delivered from asthma uh, as a result of a deliverance session? Is Leah Gray in the room? Uh, you know, are, are there things like this? Are people getting baptized in the Spirit and getting a supernatural language? I, you know, Michael, I hope you don't mind if I call on you. But Michael shared with me like how the Lord baptized him in the Spirit. And it was such a God thing. It was like, that's what God does. And nobody else was even involved in it. But God does it. You know, uh, Sam Gower-Strand had a very similar experience not too long ago of getting baptized in the Spirit. And, and no, in, we, you know, a lot of times we have a small team of people who pray for people. But I, Catherine's testimony is she was just worshiping the Lord. She had never studied the baptism in the Spirit. She was uh, 15 years old. And she was, as she was singing, she started getting overwhelmed by the presence of God. And she said, Lord, I just wish I could tell you how much I love you. And the next thing she knew, she was singing in tongues and speaking in tongues. No, she had never even heard of the baptism in the Spirit. Michael had a very similar kind of experience, and lots of us have. Uh, but it's, it's something that God does when he's in our midst. And if we don't have that, we might as well just stay home. And there's things we can do to cultivate God's presence. And our goal as a church is to have this, Exodus 40, 34. So, well, let's start in verse 33. Let's start in verse 32. As the Lord commanded Moses is the last phrase in the New American Standard. And that's after three chapters of he did this, he did that, he did all the things. You know, Exodus can be a little frustrating in that first God says, do the, make the uh, basin this way. And make the altar this way. And then a few chapters it says, he made the basin. And it repeats word for word how he's supposed to make it. And it's like, we said that already. Uh, it's worse than one of Pastor Greg's sermons. But, uh, you know, and so, you know, but it just keeps saying, as the Lord commanded Moses. He did it exactly as he was supposed to. He didn't have a better idea. He didn't read any church growth marketing books. Uh, you know, he didn't have any gimmicks. He just made the tabernacle exactly as the Lord said. That's the purpose of this series. That's why I go over, which is excusable today, because this is super important. We might as well quit. Don't even bother to read your Bible. Don't bother to come if we're not going to do it as the Lord says to do it. And if we're not going to seek the presence of God displayed manifestly in our midst. Because if we don't have that, then we're just going to church. And many, many, many Christians just go to church. They're not expecting a miraculous thing to happen in their life. And I understand that because of the culture, we have a strategy where we do most of the Lord doing supernatural things in small teams and small meetings. 
It has the one disadvantage of a lot of people miss out on that kind of stuff because it's a small team. But it has the advantage of it's a lot easier for people to get delivered or baptized in the Spirit or so forth when there's, when there's a, a minimum number of people who are filled with unbelief or, or struggle with demonic stuff or whatever in the room. And so what we're gradually trying to do is move people out of the world and out of darkness and out of demonicness and, and out of natural mindedness into a walk in the Spirit of God that is every day powerful. And that's God's calling on all of us as a church. And you have to walk a certain way to have that. So don't, just because I went long, don't get mad. Get busy studying these notes and go back to where Moses tells the Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, I don't want to go. Because I've been to churches before. I don't care for that. I'm all for, it doesn't matter if there's robes or no robes. It doesn't matter if there's candles or no candles. All of that's great, and, but what matters is if the presence of God is manifest in our midst. You know, I like to tell the testimony of uh, Leah Gray going through deliverance and taking, Leah did this when she was pregnant with Daniel. I think Daniel's four now or five, five probably. And, uh, so this is five or six years ago, but Lee, you know, I don't know what happened, but somehow when I was doing Bible studies with Lee about the Holy Spirit and all this, I never thought about one time that she, that she had asthma. And then one day we're talking and we're talking about Leah's asthma and I go, that's right, you have asthma. What's wrong with me? Asthma is always, 100% of the times, rooted in demonic issues. And I said, Leah, we need to take you through a deliverance session. And so uh, I got all prepared for it, and then we got a group of people together and started worshiping and praying, and my wife took over the meeting. <laughs> and, I, and I never got a word in edgewise. But uh, they cast a bunch of demons out of Leah, you know, Leah used to take five asthma medications a day. And she couldn't even take a shower without keeping her asthma medication around her neck in case she needed it because she couldn't get to the bedroom if it got that bad. And all of a sudden it was gone. And you know what? God wants to do a lot more of that kind of thing in our midst. There are certain kinds of sicknesses that are always rooted in demonic issues. There are others, like for instance, seizures uh, can be rooted in demonic stuff, uh, but it, you could have a brain tumor and have cancer and have seizures. You know, I had a friend who died of, a brain, of, of cancer and he had brain tumors and he would have these grand mal seizures and stuff and it had nothing to do with demonic issues. But most epilepsy is about demonic issues. And if you get the person deep enough in Christ that they're not only ready to get delivered, but ready to keep their deliverance, they will be healed. All right, let's get into this. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it 
and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day it was taken. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel, oops, now wait a minute, uh, throughout all their journeys. So when was the last time that the presence of God came on us so much that people started to ask God to tone it down because we can't take it? I've experienced that just once in my Christian life. If you've if you never read John Bunyan's uh, writings like Pilgrim's Progress, read, read his more important book called uh, Abundance of Grace to the Chief of Sinners. He had an experience with the presence of God that was so strong he had to ask the Lord to tone it down. And because he did that, he was afraid he'd blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And he was such a messed up guy that he, it, he, no one could convince him that he hadn't blasphemed the Holy Spirit for over 20 years. And then he went on to be one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church. And uh, so, you know what? I love when God brings uh, people who are really screwed up and that you have some sense that God's really called them to great things because you, like, you get to stand back and watch to see what God does. And, uh, you know, you see, you know, like Nathan and Stephen and I often have... Uh, discussions about like who was the most screwed up <laughs> and uh and the lord delights in that kind of stuff you know i was not even in my own right mind some people think i'm still not <laughs> but uh, uh you know so i hope i hope we have one big takeaway from today we need to cry out for god's glory among us and, uh, you know, once I heard a certain Pentecostal preacher teaching, and he was talking about uh, not sinning in such a way that you offended the angels that God's assigned to help us. And that's a good point. But guess what? The Holy Spirit is called the helper. Uh, the word parakletos is translated in the New King James, the, the New American Standard, the English Standard Version, and others as helper. And we are actually, one of the challenges we have is can we, we have to ask God's grace to change us so that we can walk in a way that the Holy Spirit would be pleased to dwell with us. Some of us drive the Holy Spirit away just by how much time we spend on Facebook. Ask yourself, am I doing things that are cultivating the presence of God because there's a cumulative anointing that affects the whole church? You know, when, you, when we start to worship on a Sunday morning, I can tell if, pe what, if people did the right kinds of things on Saturday nights. Really. Can't you? You can tell. You know, does the Lord's presence drop on the first song or does it take us five songs to start getting a sense of his presence? So, um, I went way over today. Sorry to the kids and the parents with kids. But if we don't get this point about Moses' intercession and asking the Lord's presence to go with us, 
it really is like we really should just stop doing this. Right? And so, and this is the responsibility of Sindhu, of Jesse, of Abigail, of Bradbury, of Daniel. The, the presence of God is the responsibility of every one of us. So, let's get uh, the, uh, whoever's doing communion. I, I had a communion meditation that I had designed. That it was the whole thing of First uh, Corinthians ten sixteen. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The Greek word for participation is koinonia, which a lot of you know is translated fellowship, partner, sharing. Uh, in, in the King James, New King James, Geneva Bible, it's translated communion. In the New American Standard, in the New English translation, it's translated sharing. Uh, in the NET, and the NIV, it's translated participation. All of those are very good translations for the word koinonia. 